Welcome to the 74 and West Exclusives Podcast. On this episode, affluence, poverty, the economy. These are all things financial, but a new book suggests that there's a whole other kind of wealth, or lack thereof, a temporal one. That's right, I'm talking about time. Ashley Willens, the author of that book, joined me for a talk about time affluence, time poverty, and what we as individuals, as well as companies and governments, can do to help manage this most precious of resources. The legendary jazz musician Miles Davis once said, Time isn't the main thing, it's the only thing. Well, here to discuss her fascinating work on The Only Thing is our guest. My name is Ashley Willens. I'm an assistant professor at the Harvard Business School. I'm a social psychologist by training, and most of my research focuses on time, money, and happiness. Now, of course, Ashley joined me to discuss her new book. But before we get to that, I do want to note that as if being an author and happiness researcher at Harvard Business School isn't interesting enough, Ashley also used to be an actor. This is something she references in her book, noting that she spent most of her undergrad years studying theater and dressing up like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yeah, I was like so happy that anecdote made it into the book um, because I have so many college students looking for me for career advice now and I have no real advice except to follow the things that you're passionate about. And one of the anecdotes in the book is that I spent more time dressed up as Kermit the Frog, running around, trying on different outfits in the dram room of uh, high school than I did learning linear algebra, and everything seemed to work out okay for me, so you should follow what you like and not try to force your career into a straight path. They say no part is too small, and maybe that's true. Ashley didn't exactly have a leading role in it, but she tells me... Yeah, I have a two-second part in the hit movie Juno, and if you... Google 10 Great Seconds and the movie Juno, you'll figure out exactly who I am. And I'll just leave it there because it's funny once you figure it out. Um, and yeah, my my, my uh, grad at school advisor used to always bug me. She said, you you still have more IMDb credits than you do publications. You've, you've really got to start working on that, Ashley. She'd give me a hard time. I think I finally have more papers than IMDb credits, so I can officially call myself a researcher now. Seriously, do look up her two-second part in the movie Juno. It's totally worth your time. And do check out her enlightening and, I think, very useful new book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. My tagline for the book is, we all know that time is our most valuable resource, but we don't act like it is. How can we put our values into practice on a daily basis? without making major life decisions, without necessarily quitting our job or moving to a new city. All of us can be more time rich than we are today. So let's figure out how to do that. It's worth noting here again, that even though this is a book about happiness and optimizing your time, Time Smart is published by the Harvard Business Review Press. This is data-driven stuff, and writing it was a research-intensive process, though Ashley and her editor did their best to keep it fast-paced and highly readable. I think my book is really a blend of the academic research I've been doing and also practical strategies, and I really did that on purpose. I'm not shy about admitting that as a time and happiness researcher, I'm bad at putting time first. And so she says, If I was struggling and I wrote an entire 150-page, 200-page dissertation on this topic, it must be really challenging for everyone. So I want the book to highlight both the best academic science, but also how to put that science 
into practice in our own lives to have more and better time. More and better time. That's the crux of this book. You see, Ashley has been studying time affluence, which is a type of wealth where time is the currency. And not just any time, but good time. Her findings indicate that 80% of us experience a sort of time poverty, meaning we either do not have enough time to accomplish and or enjoy the things we're trying to accomplish and or enjoy, or we do have the time, but it's simply misused. It's a simple concept, but once you start getting into it, you realize just how abstract it is. And that, Ashley explains, is why so many people struggle with time poverty. This is a really important point, and it's part of the reason that we focus more on work or productivity as opposed to having more and better time, is that time is abstract and amorphous when you think about it. Uh, we are better at valuing $100 similarly now as we are from six months and one year from now, but 30 more minutes, two weeks from now, I'm not really sure what that's going to do for me. What does that What does that mean? And there's a lot of good research in the behavioral science space showing that we're very insensitive to small losses of free time. And we don't start really caring about losing time until we're losing 10 months, two years on a project proposal. Then we really pay attention. But all of these small ways that we lose time every day often go unnoticed. The amount of time we spend researching a deal, how far we're willing to go to drive for cheaper gas, whether we cash in our paid vacations or fail to take them all together. And the accumulation of all these small decisions we make over the course of our lives really add up to making us feel time poor. And I do think and talk about this concept of happiness dollars, um, which is just putting a, a financial value on the happiness you would gain if you made a time-related choice. Making a time-related choice can mean a lot of things, and we'll get into some of them here, but her point is this. People can and should think about time as concretely as they think about their own money. Specifically, people should put value on their time and consider that their minutes may very well be more valuable than their dollars, because when they start doing that, the data strongly suggests there are real benefits. So very concretely, valuing time more than money in the absence of changing your behavior, literally just saying you value time more than money, produces the happiness benefits that are equivalent to making about $2,200 more of household income per year. That's a measurement she gets more in depth with in the book. But for the sake of this discussion, know that her data backs it up. So with that in mind, how do we go about becoming more time affluent? And is time affluence really just something for the already affluent? We explore that and more after the break. There's an old saying, time is money. That expression can be taken two ways. One, if you have more time to work, you can make more money. But the other way is that the more time you spend on something, the more it's costing. In fact, that word spend is the point. We spend money, we spend time. And that brings us to the fascinating conundrum of what so many of us do when we try to save money. We spend time on it. A lot of time. Not talking about sitting down and coming up with a budget. No, one of the things Ashley is talking about is the time we spend trying to save a few bucks here and there. When you start to do the math of it, which I've done, you realize that these small decisions, the decision to go to the gas station further away or um, spend more time researching your next purchase, that all of those things are not maybe saving you a small amount of money, but are costing a huge amount 
of time that can really add up in terms of happiness. And that's how you come to the counterintuitive conclusion that in actuality, spending less can sometimes cost you more. If you go to the gas station a few blocks away, you not only burn less fuel than if you drove across town to fill up with the cheapest price, but you burn less time too. Taking hours to find the best deal on some random appliance might have you paying less at checkout, but when you factor time and money, it costs you more than if you simply bought it at the standard retail price. And then there's outsourcing, which does cost money, you know, getting access to childcare, ordering takeout more often than you usually do and thinking about that as a time gain and then spending that time more deliberately can produce happiness gains that are equivalent to $12,000, $14,000 more of ha- household income per year. But that begs the question, is time affluence only for the financially affluent? Time affluence and time scarcity are important for everyone and happen to everyone. Indeed, her research suggests this is a universal issue. In analyses I've run with almost 3 million Americans, 80% of uh, employed Americans report feeling time poor, which they feel out of control. They don't feel like they have enough time to do all the things that they want to do or have to do. And these feelings of time poverty have stronger negative effects on happiness for everyone than being unemployed. And in fact, when she looked at the data, Ashley found something intriguing. These results, if anything, are strongest at the highest and lowest income spectrum in the data, but for different reasons. So what are those different reasons? People who are struggling to make ends meet lower socioeconomic status individuals in my data, they report greater time poverty in part because they might work multiple jobs, which fragments their time. They might have less access to childcare. They might have to commute longer distances to work and they might have less support. Um, maybe they're single parents. And so these feelings of not having enough time to do all of the things that they need to do in a day are being driven by all of these societal factors that are going on in their lives. And we also know from our data that just the feeling of, of not having enough can make people feel time poor. So if you feel scarce in one domain like money, this can trip this general sense of not having enough across different domains of your life, like time. For people who are very wealthy it's, or, or more wealthy in jobs like white collar workers, there's this idea of the ideal worker norms that exist in many white collar workplaces, whereby it's hard to tell if we're a good employee. We might be working from home, especially right now. Um, we are not producing widgets in a factory. And so it can be harder to objectively measure the quality of our work each day. And as a result of that, employers use work hours or the quickness of our responses as a proxy for quality, which creates very perverse work norms and incentive structures for people who are at the more top end of the socioeconomic spectrum. But as for that lower end of the spectrum... Definitely, I advocate in the book and I'm very clear that my research suggests that focusing on time doesn't just benefit people who are financially secure. If anything, it might benefit people who are struggling to make ends meet most. And this was this questioning, this line of questioning, which is very valid and well taken, was my impetus to go and test these ideas in Kenya and in India. So how does that square with the idea that by spending a little more or hiring others to do tasks, people can become more time affluent? After all, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum don't generally have the money to do that. Buying time 
giving up money to have more free time by delegating dislike tasks to others and outsourcing is only one strategy I talk about in the book. There's two other strategies that are really important and free. Um, the first strategy is finding time, going through your calendar, figuring out what are the activities that bring you joy and meaning and trying to do more of those and less activities that bring you misery or make you unhappy and being more mindful and deliberate with time, all of us can do this. And then that last strategy. Reframing time is also another strategy I talk about in the book, which is there are, there are very real constraints on how we spend time, our workplaces and societies, our family structure means that we often have to spend our time in ways that don't necessarily necessarily bring us joy or meaning. And if we are in those activities, we can reframe uh, the activities in ways that are more likely to promote happiness. So my one of my PhD students has a great project showing that, you know, this probably comes out of all of the bureaucracy we have to deal with, with ethics applications and grants, writing and budgets. Um, but she has a great paper showing that just simply thinking about how your task that even if it seems mundane at the time, connects with other people's tasks in the workplace to help your work get done, can help people feel much more positive and motivated and inspired to engage in tasks that they don't like in the workplace. So there's a lot that can be done without giving up any money in order to focus on having more and better time. Coming up after this final break, what are businesses' roles in helping create more time affluence? Also, How has the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted the time economy? Welcome back. In this episode of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast, we're talking to associate professor at the Harvard Business School, Ashley Willens. She's a happiness and time researcher and author of the new book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life, published by the Harvard Business Review Press. In these previous segments, she's talked about how to gain time affluence and how to fight time poverty. But I wanted to ask Ashley about how all this might work at a different level. How does this scale up to businesses and governments on more systemic levels? I love this question. I wish every organization also accounted for and tracked their time deficits. That would go a long way in um, helping workers all over the world feel more time rich. Ashley says that for institutions like companies and governments, there needs to not just be a culture that respects time, but actual policies that will drive time affluence. As a real-world example, she points to a company called Simpla Flying. That Ashley explains. Forced employees to take time off every couple of months by saying they were going to withhold paid the pay from the paid vacations if employees checked their email at all, went on Slack at all, they were going to have their paid vacation taken away uh, from them. And I think although that seems really intense, those kinds of strong norms at an organizational level are really important for helping to what I call legitimize leisure. I couldn't help but wonder, though. How has COVID-19 impacted all of this? Obviously, the pandemic is devastating on many different levels, but in forcing so many of us to stay home, I asked Ashley what her thoughts were on how we live now and if our time wealth has changed. You know, obviously, there's, there are, there's an emotional uh, impact. There is the, there's a health impact. Um, but it's also shifted the, the, the dynamics, the way that we work. Um, how has that uh, changed or not changed? Um, our time economy. 
You have great terms. I love that one too. Time economy is so great. I'm going to take notes on this and come back to you. Time deficit and time economy is perfect. I love it. Um, anyway, so I get asked this question a lot and I've done a ton of research during this period of time to exactly understand this question. So we have a, an HBR that we just published a couple of weeks ago suggesting that actually research um, our own and others shows that you would think we would all be more time affluent because we're not commuting to the office as regularly as we were before if we're not an essential worker. And yet we fill that time with work, of course, given all of the research that I do and um, what we've been talking about. And so people are working longer hours. They're working more. They're having more meetings because every conversation has to be a meeting. We have less opportunity for informal social interactions, which are very helpful, not only from a morale standpoint, but in getting creative work done, especially you need a sounding board for ideas to schedule in bounce time to have meaningful social interactions with colleagues. And so the best data really suggests people are feeling more stressed. Um, they're not necessarily engaging in more leisure. Some are, but that those benefits are not uniformly distributed across the population. So we have a nine or 10 study paper that's under review now showing that both men and women are not working less than they were before, before the forced lockdowns due to COVID. But women are doing much more of the housework and much more of the childcare. And that this is true even for young cohabitating couples who don't have kids. So 20 year olds living in Denmark, when the forced lockdowns happened, women started doing much more cooking and much more cleaning. And men are substituting this uh, additional free time that they're getting as a result of um, working from home with more active leisure and going outside more. Men of Denmark do better. And really, all of us need to do better. As Ashley explains in her book, we're shredding our leisure time into time confetti with our mobile phones. We're squandering what could be free time for family time by packing more work into it. We're spending far too much time chasing bargains, and we're not giving ourselves the breaks of outsourcing tasks and services where we can afford to do it. But it's not just us, the individuals, as Ashley reminds us. Time poverty is something that afflicts all of us and will require solutions that don't just happen at the individual level, but happen at the organizational and government level as well. Time Smart by Ashley Willens is now available for purchase. I'd like to thank the book's author, Ashley Willens, for joining me in this discussion. More great conversations with thought leaders and industry experts in the 74 and West Exclusives podcast. If you like reading, we've got some fascinating interviews published at 74andwest.com under the Exclusives tab. That's also a great place to find out more about the client and employee intelligence work that 74 and West does. Thanks so much. See you next time. 